What's up, everybody? Welcome to a very special episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast. This week, we have extra special guests on. These are our first professional guests. We always do say, like, extra special guests, but it's always just people we know. This time it's true. This time we have (laughs) real experts. No offense to any of our friends and family that I've been on. Yep, yep. We have on Jim McDevitt and Eric San Juan, authors of A Year of Hitchcock, 52 Weeks with the Master of of suspense and we are going to be covering psycho is your time so empty no well i run the office and uh, tend the cabins and grounds and and do little uh, errands for my mother the one she allows i might be capable of doing do you go out with friends well a, a boy's best friend is his mother you've never had an empty moment in your entire life have you only my share. Where are you going? I didn't mean to pry. I'm looking for a private island. What are you running away from? Why do you ask that? People never run away from anything. You know what I think? I think that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them, and none of us can ever get out. We scratch and, and claw, but only at the air, only at each other, and for all of it. We never budge an inch. Sometimes we deliberately step into those traps. I was born in mine. I don't mind it anymore. Oh, but you should. You should mind it. Oh, I do. (laughs) But I say I don't. You know, if anyone ever talked to me the way I heard, the way she spoke to you. Sometimes when she talks to me like that, I feel I'd like to go up there and curse her and, and, and leave her forever, or at least a fire, but I know I can't. That said, I will let our guests introduce themselves and give us a little bit of background, and we'll go from there. Guys, hit it. Jim, please go. Okay, well, uh, I'm uh, Jim McDevitt, and uh, I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and goodness, it was uh, back in, what, 2009 that A Year of Hitchcock came out, and uh, so Eric and I wrote this book uh, quite a few years ago now, but uh, it was an amazing experience. Uh, took a little bit more than a year to uh, <laughs> to watch all of these films, but uh, we positioned it in a format that essentially, if you can watch a, a movie a week, you can just about get the entirety of uh, the Hitchcock catalog, and uh, experience it and if if you watch them in chronological order uh, it's a a very interesting experiment to track his uh, development as an artist yeah i didn't realize his catalog of films was this big until i started looking into it myself oh yeah yeah psycho is number 47 yeah imagine being any director now saying yeah my 47th movie is you know a hit and your 47th movie is something like psycho that like changes the game for horror yeah which um oh and i guess i should introduce myself real quick um i'm I'm eric san juan i'm a jim's co-author on both a year of hitchcock as well as our follow-up which came out in 2013 uh, hitchcock's villains murderers maniacs and mother issues which uh i'm sure as the title makes clear it's specifically focused on hitchcock's villains as well as a few other books i did a a book on the films of akira kurosawa really year or the year before and september 20th my book on the films of martin scorsese comes out 
Gangster's Greed and Guilt. I think that's what it is. Something like nice. that. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'm super excited for that one. I'm a huge Scorsese fan. Aaron is chomping at yeah. the bit for that. So. I also didn't know that you did a Kurosawa book, which I'm probably going to get on the internet as soon as we're done and order a copy <laughs> of that. Oh, that's all. That's awesome. Yeah, we uh, Jim and I have uh, had a great time exploring the catalog of Hitchcock's work. Um, I sort of came to it from a perspective as a writer when I approached Jim with the idea because Jim was a pre-existing Hitchcock expert, whereas I was more of a Hitchcock neophyte um, at the time. Uh, it was just a, a tremendous journey. In fact, that word is apropos because the initial title of the book was meant to be a journey with Hitchcock. Nice. Like, as Jim was mentioning, our idea was the notion of going from start to finish through his career and experiencing that journey. And as Aaron, I think you were just mentioning, you know, Psycho was, he had already done 40-something films prior to that, many of them which were already groundbreaking films in their own right. So that it kind of really goes to show just what a remarkable career the guy had. Totally. And how, how long have y'all known each other? Did y'all know each other for a chunk of years before coming together to write this book? Or did y'all kind of find each other in the research and, and re- watching these films? I guess we, we knew each other, what, a year or two before we, we started writing this book. We initially started writing the book in 2006. Uh, and it came wow. out okay. in 2009. We met on online through a, a movie message board, actually, but uh, okay. we met in person for the first time uh, at a Phillies game in, what, 2005. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, and um, and and for some reason, I had the ridiculous idea of, hey, Jim, I'm kind of interested in diving, you know, taking a deep dive into Hitchcock, and let's do this, but maybe it's a book, maybe? Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it just sort of went from there. So, yeah, you know, I think in working on the book together, developed a, a friendship that's long lasted the projects you know themselves you know anytime you go through the the meat grinder with somebody you're going to sort of form some bonds of fellowship in doing that you know so initially i think when we wrote the book together that was sort of part of that but now it's just a sort of a fun memory for the two of us i think yeah in fact eric has become one of my best friends in the world and he's actually set to be my uh, best man in my uh, wedding if uh covid will ever go away (laughs) (laughs) yeah the times we live in yeah i know right so so i know you're the host so i shouldn't be throwing questions but i want to throw one out there anyway yeah Yeah, please so i guess that the the answer may be obvious because you're you're horror fans but what drew you to psycho where how did that land on your radar aaron do you want to take this one we in general have a giant list of movies that we wanted to cover on this show yeah we try and make it a wide variety we try not to do like a ghost movie from the 90s and then the next week another ghost movie from the 90s it'll Mm -hmm. be very mix and match or like a lot of other horror movie podcasts hosted by guys around my age see all's age where it's basically just centered around 80s horror that tends to be kind of the go-to for most people we yes we would tackle the big movies but we want to bring attention to lesser known horror movies and granted we've hit a couple big ones on the way already uh we started with texas chainsaw massacre but we also make it a variety in terms of how well known these films are yeah smaller indie stuff foreign stuff just things that we enjoyed wanted to bring attention to for anybody listening and as far as picking psycho goes i mean this is the granddaddy this is kind of the be-all end-all definitive start of the modern horror movie Mm -hmm. this might be the oldest movie we've tackled so far aaron maybe you think black christmas was 
was the oldest one previously? Maybe, yeah. We need to get into some older stuff as well, too. But uh, this one's, I, I've been reticent to cover Psycho just because it's so big and there's so much to talk about. So, you know, on that note, we are going to try to keep the focus and narrow down a little bit, you know, but I'm sure we'll kind of get off onto some tangents here and there. When it comes to like bigger movies like this, too, a common inside joke that has kind of appeared with this show is that I have not seen a lot of these classics start to finish. I've caught like chunks of it here and there. I've watched the best jump scare parts of the scenes in some of these movies. You know movies. the tropes. You know like, it I know from the pop tropes. culture. Yeah. I know everything from pop culture, but I've never like sat down and actually watched start to finish a lot of these movies, like a lot of the Carpenter movies, mm-hmm. Psycho. I had never watched The Thing from start to finish. So for me, when we do something like Psycho, I hate to admit it, but it is a little bit almost like of an excuse to like finally sit down and enjoy a classic and finally say that, yes, I've seen this movie. I can check that off my list because like Aaron was saying, I've always enjoyed horror as a genre, but I've always enjoyed it from a video game standpoint or a novel standpoint Mm -hmm. or even a comic book standpoint. But I've always had this love hate relationship with horror movies um, because I kind of hated how a lot of modern horror relied so heavily on jump scares. And I just Mm -hmm. jump scares that are not well earned. I can't stand them. And it completely turned me off to cinema for a little while. But I always wanted to return to it and go back and explore the other decades that I've overlooked all these years. Especially because in doing that, you get a chance to see the language of horror as it was being written. Yes. Yep. And of course, now you, you're you aware of the tropes and, and you're aware of the kind of the touchstones of what makes modern horror horror. But then you return to the origins and you see, OK, that's where these tropes you know came from. And this, this is like the language actually being written you know in front of you. It's a, that's a great project. I'm sort of envious of that you have a chance to do that. Well, and it allowed me to like one time make this comparison of Black Christmas is to the original Halloween is what Dinosaur Jr. is to Nirvana. Oh, excellent. And then I guess in this case, Psycho would be, I don't know. Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath. Everything else. Everything or, yeah. And and you just completely won me over with the the Dinosaur Jr. reference, incidentally, because I'm a huge fan. You spin bugged for me and I'll I'll always be a fan. (laughs) Awesome. You know, you asked a second ago, like, why Psycho? With me always having a lifelong love of movies in general psycho is one that i saw probably way too early i mean i say that about most horror movies that i cover on the show that i probably saw them way too early but i definitely went through that film kid hitchcock phase through middle school and into high school where i just would sit and watch as much of his stuff that i could get my hands on and just kind of learning like you said that language and the methodology and just kind of how to put a movie together that was my first giant chunk of education in terms of film was just literally sitting and watching putting them together i love how you're talking about this and saying this while you're wearing a freaking eraser head shirt <laughs> like that, <laughs> which is anti everything else yeah you are like the prototypical like film student right now <laughs> sure yeah but um yeah hitchcock i got that weird bug and was just watching as much as i can and i mean this was when you know tcm you could catch three Hitchcock movies a week pretty consistently. So I was recording them and watching them back and everything else. But Psycho was just kind of the ones that I fixated on. And like we said, you could literally teach an entire film class top to bottom just off this one movie. There's just something so modern about it. It broke so much new ground for the time. 
and to this day, it's still an incredibly effective horror movie, um, even with as much exposure as we've had to just the world around us and how a lot of the social norms have changed, the movie's still shocking in a lot of ways that are surprising. And just learning a lot of the old, you know, kind of bits of trivia that have floated around for this movie for the last 60 years, which, kind of fun timing, we're probably going to get this episode out on the U.S. debut on its 60th anniversary, so that'll be kind of fun. Terrific. But overall, yeah, I mean, this is still one of those that I love showing to people. This was the first movie I showed to my high school film club that I started. This was literally the first movie that we all sat down and watched, and a group of high schoolers who were all generally interested in movies, but, you know, what is this black and white crap you're showing us? Speechless by the end. Yeah, oh yeah. And my wife and I actually saw it at an Alamo Draft House in Austin a couple years ago on Mother's Day, and that was the first time that she had seen it, and same thing, she just kind of walked out dumb-smacked by the end, just, wait, this movie's how old? And what? Everything that I know kind of stems from this one thing and just how much stuff that you can look at and say, yeah, Psycho directly inspired all this other stuff. Well, and not to be a complete walking cliche, but it was almost like a religious experience finally watching it start to finish the other day in preparation for this episode. It was that good. Like it was one of those movies where it's so good, you know, it's timeless. And like I had that kind of experience with Black Christmas when we did that about a year or so ago. I had that when I saw Mad Max Fury Road in theaters for the first time. Like, it's very rare that that happens, and it happened with this, and I was just watching it. Like, I had to actually watch it on my laptop. I couldn't even watch it on my TV. So, you know, I had the small screen, but even then, even in that setting with just basic iPhone headphones in, it was still just so effective, and it's kind of bittersweet for me because I'm a little disappointed with myself that I waited this long to finally sit, sit down and watch it, but at the same time, time I'm glad I am old enough now and we're deep enough into our own podcast now that I can fully appreciate it sure because I think if we made this our first episode instead of Texas Chainsaw Massacre I don't know if I would have had the same appreciation for it as I do now um and I definitely wouldn't have had the same appreciation for it if I saw it when I was like 13 or 14 which that was when I saw the birds and that was like the first Hitchcock movie I watched start to finish mm-hmm. it was back when I was like 13 14 same thing it was on TCM <laughs> same here yeah yeah the birds and I I didn't appreciate it for what it was. I liked it even as a kid, but I was focused on like, oh, it's so cool that these birds are killing these people and ignore <laughs> all the nuance of characters and dialogue and suspense and writing. And I would have been upset like if I had already previously seen that and like that first fuck yes watch experience, like I missed that as an adult, basically. You touched on something a moment ago that I, I think we're going to touch on probably later on in, in, in the episode, but I think it's sort of worth pointing out. And that's that you just had this experience just sort of on your laptop with a little set of tiny headphones and so on and yet it was still very effective and I think that is a testament to not just how impeccably well put together the film is but the fact that Hitchcock produced and directed this this film using his television crew he did it on a, a very yeah. much a shoestring budget and he did it in a, in a very kind of low budget um, you know what we're just going to go ahead and bang this thing out kind of way and because of that you don't need a wonderful television or an impeccable viewing experience to really get the full experience because this movie was made essentially in the same way that these crusty old black and white TV shows were were made. You can watch it on a laptop and it's just as effective as it would be in a theater because of that. So it really comes down to the language of cinema and the writing and the shocks of the way, you know, the the, the way the plot twists and, Absolutely. you know, the, the these kind of... The editing, really. Yeah. 
Oh, abs- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is definitely one that I can't not say that I haven't ripped it off in a couple of my little short projects. <laughs> and I love seeing those compilations that you can find on YouTube now of just shots and sequences from Psycho with three other movies from big directors underneath and just seeing, oh, they pulled this completely this was lifted from here this music cue from herman was lifted and basically just flipped to this other movie just so many things where this movie influenced everything and everybody underneath it i mean the entire film school generation from the 60s and 70s all looked at hitchcock as the grand master and this movie was one of the ones that definitely influenced all those guys that would go on to do horror and thriller stuff for sure so All that said, um, before we get any deeper, uh, let's take a quick pause and let's hear from our friends at Nightmare Threads. You you fucked it up. It's here from us about our friends from Nightmare Threads. What's up, fellow spoopy people? Are you shopping for horror movie merch to match the fear in your heart? Do you want to show your love and fandom for horror, or are you just looking for the perfect gift for that special mutant in your life? If so, check out Nightmare Threads, your one-stop shop for all things horror made for fans by fans. NightmareThreads.com offers clothing, apparel, and merch for numerous horror movies, TV shows, and other macabre pop culture. Nightmare Threads also has original horror content articles news and more so you can support us by supporting them check out our show's twitter and facebook pages for our unique referral link or use coupon code watch if you dare all one word no spaces at checkout to save 10 percent. so just go to nightmarethreads.com and again use our referral link or the code watch if you dare to save 10 percent. watch horror love horror support horror shop sally All right, so once again, we are going to be tackling Psycho from director Alfred Hitchcock on this episode, and we are going to be kind of trying to keep the focus a little narrow just because, let's be real, we could do, I mean, y'all wrote a whole damn book about Hitchcock. We could get into hours and hours and hours worth just talking about Hitchcock the man, Hitchcock the career, this one movie. So what we want to kind of do is keep the focus a little bit narrowed around why is Psycho still an effective horror movie? You know, kind of like Derek was mentioned earlier when we just talked about today in 2020, why is this movie still still shocking why is this movie still suspenseful why is this movie still effective you know beyond it just being a solid movie like it as a horror movie why is this movie still a go-to and you know it's aged so well and it still can be referenced that's kind of where we want to keep the focus as much as we can just to keep from spinning off in a million directions of course well and to follow off what you said aaron i'll do my little spiel right here just so we can focus strictly on the experts and and really digging into this. Um, Horror newbies, this movie scared me. This nearly six-year-old movie scared me, and it's a realistic horror movie, too, with, like, people. It's no supernatural elements. Kind of same with Black Christmas. Like, I didn't think a slasher movie could get to me, and yet here we are. But with all that being said, if you have any interest in film making, film in general, not even just horror, just film, you should sit down and watch Psycho start to finish at least once. 
and just get ready like if you are more of a cowardly person like me it's gonna get you <laughs> like it's good there <laughs> there were like two or three jump scares in this movie that i kind of knew were coming and with it being dated i was like oh yeah black and white it's dated i get it it's dripping in suspense but it's not too bad and it still got me. <laughs> it still jump scared me a couple times. So I highly recommend watch it, even if horror movies are not your bag. To Aaron, to go to the question that, that you just sort of posed, I think one of the things that allows Psycho to still resonate, and one of the reasons why Psycho sort of created the, the, the template for a lot of horror to come, especially slasher horror, comes down to the idea of vulnerability. Yeah. The, the characters in, in, in this film, Marion Crane in particular, played by Janet Lee, is as vulnerable as any of us would be and not in a sort of a, sh a shrinking violet kind of way it's not that she's a, an incapable character it's not you know or anything like that but she's a normal person exactly it's, it's, it's very much just you're a regular normal person you're not some super spy you're not you know some military trained badass you're not this supernatural i have some kind of power she's a regular woman working an office job and you know think about how vulnerable we feel today in modern times when like oops I left my phone at home mm -hmm. and go back to then, you know, with all the other things, you know, going on. So yeah, totally. That's definitely a huge aspect of it. And obviously the shower scene is the epitome of that vulnerability at the same time. Yes. Right. And she's a, a normal person, but she's very, very quickly thrust into an unusual situation. She's got this money yeah. and she's basically just going on the run. And what's so shocking is where, you know, the first part of the movie, you're thinking, well, okay, this is this is what this is about is yeah. you know, her running off with this money what's what's going to happen is she going to get in trouble is she going to get away and then boom she's dead yeah, yeah the, and, the, you know, they, the, they killed the name star of the movie you know what 40 minutes into it yeah, or whatever like 35 40 minutes in yeah the initial suspense is not about hey there's a murderer out there the initial suspense is hey are the police going to catch her is she going to get away <laughs> um, so that turn when you reach the shower scene you know she's reached a, a place of safety she's reached a place of refuge a place where possibly Possibly she could feel comfortable for a little bit as she's trying to escape the authorities. She's essentially just the audience. It, there's not that level of manipulation that you'll find in, let's say, Spielberg film, where the people who are in jeopardy are often children. Yeah. You know, Spielberg is, is putting characters in jeopardy who, you know, they can't really defend themselves. You, you know, you know, they're they're incapable of sort of dealing with anything that that comes along. But we know that Marion Crane is at least somewhat capable. She's already been involved in this plot to get the money in the first place. So she's she's not pure as driven snow. She's shrewd. She's managed to elude capture and elude the authorities. You know, she already had that close call prior to reaching the, the base motel. And when she gets there, she's in this safe space. She's she's in this place where yeah. she's at her most vulnerable, as I think you had pointed out, that the shower is sort of the epitome of that. You know, because where else do we feel except when we're sitting on the can, of course, and any more vulnerable than uh, than that. I think that is one of the aspects from this film that horror directors sort of took and really leaned into when, you know, when you get into films like Halloween and, and some others is, is this idea of this is just an ordinary person who is now is, is in a position where they're facing something that they just have no concept of how to fight back against it. They don't even know it's coming. I think that's one of the shocking things. Yeah. She doesn't even know something's coming. Yeah. And you're so engaged as an audience member too, because everything that you're taking in through that entire first part of the movie is all through her perspective. The camera is following her gaze and what she's looking at and what she's observing. You're even hearing like her inner voice and monologue kind of run through all these 
scenarios and everything that you're getting is from her perspective. So it's not just that you're an audience voyeur as much as you are participating in her experience. Mm -hmm. So that makes you feel vulnerable uh, as an effect. And honestly, what helped, I mean, I don't mean this in a good way, but what kind of helped this movie continue to age so well is we are now post serial killer world especially right now with like the rise again of true crime popularity but the thing that's so terrifying about a psycho is what happens to her is just so random and fast and shocking that that's honestly like if you read about a lot of the victims of some of these serial killers that's honestly like tragically what happens to a lot of them like they just don't see it coming Mm -hmm. and then it happens and they were completely in their own world doing their own thing like she is something else that really shocked me about this movie because i went in assuming the shower scene was like early on within like the first 10 minutes i assumed it was all around the bates motel the entire time no this movie is very much not just a horror movie but a movie about crime in general yeah with her on the run with the money and like y'all said it was like about a good 35 40 minutes before like the horror that this movie is known for was actually introduced and that was shocking i i also thought that this movie kind of took place somewhere that was more populous or quote-unquote popular like around the New York City area maybe and like Bates Motel was out in the country but no this is like in between Phoenix Arizona and California Mm -hmm. and like I didn't expect that either and it's not even like Hollywood California it's like you know Bakersville or whatever the or Fairvale or whatever those places are that in the movie and that also kind of surprised me as well that it chose to be in this location that you normally wouldn't think it would be in at least in like this is me being a product of being born in the 80s growing up in the 90s is i assumed every black and white movie like took place in either hollywood or new york city (laughs) yeah and we can certainly relate to like the ruralness because we're both living in the south we grew up in the south so that was something that from an early age i could relate to certainly was just these more off the beaten path and kind of scary places Mm -hmm. yeah you know you'd mentioned viewpoint earlier and i think that's something that helps as well because it's it's very much a subjective viewpoint as opposed to an objective viewpoint you're in her head so you're feeling the the tension that she feels and the paranoia that she feels and then um as mentioned before then that moment comes when the story shifts and it's just sort of out of the blue it's 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 out of nowhere and because the viewpoint has been so subjective leading up to that you're kind of there with her yeah you know in 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 that moment and i think that subjectivity is something that has been used to great effect in the the genre in general after that you know this this idea of really putting yourself in the character's head and 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 seeing things from the character's viewpoint so you get you get an understanding of sometimes the you know the fear and the tension that they feel though i think where where it's most effective here with her you know because there's that sequence the tension building sequence with with the police officer behind her and so on but where the big hit comes is the complacency she feels once she's at Bates. yep you are suddenly now in a more dangerous place with a literal bird of prey to kind of borrow from a lot of the imagery in the movie thinking you're in that safe spot when in reality now you're really in the belly of the beast Mm -hmm. and yeah overall to that narrative and tonal shift from like the woman on the run movie to just a straight up murder mystery it's a great way to keep your audience engaged with the film as well because now all of a sudden boom halfway through wait what is this movie doing right like it's completely changing into this other thing entirely and it throws you off guard but it re-engages the audience and it also thematically is a good shift from that very subjective viewpoint of Marion and there's kind of this uncanny shift that happens toward Norman and it's very difficult 
and disturbing as an audience member to Could you imagine? be spending the first 45 minutes empathizing with Marion, and now all of a sudden you're really supposed to be empathizing with Norman and stepping into his head and his world and his viewpoint and thought process. Just the idea of that, because like the movie does a great job of making her, even though she did this thing that was wrong and a crime, you still empathize and sympathize with her, and for a movie this old, it still does a better job at showing like anxiety and really showing you like what that feels like and what the thoughts are like racing through your mind during anxiety than most modern movies do and then just like could you imagine 1960 watching this it's all leading up to this and then that freaking shower scene happens like the twist there is mind-blowing it's the he's been a ghost all along he's the dead guy in the middle of the room but this is like what established all of that to come later on yeah Uh, and and it had to be all the more shocking for the audience in 1960 because they had no idea that this was coming the way the film was marketed it was they told the viewers you had to be in the audience Uh, at the time it started they would not let anybody in after it started you know no spoilers and it really really was a truly shocking experience for the film goers in 1960 i think it would have been an amazing experience and on that note was it also kind of i don't know if progressive is the right word here but also the fact that you had such a capable character because like yes even though she's only in this the first 35 40 minutes and she does become the victim she is characterized as very independent and very uh like we've been saying capable and then for it to happen like this and then you have a shower scene granted it doesn't show any nudity there there are these quick cuts that kind of go around that but even back in 1960 the idea of a naked woman in a shower being stabbed to death just seems like it would have been unheard of until this oh yeah oh yeah speaking of the marketing for Derek's I guess edification and just for everybody else listening tell us a little bit about the specific marketing strategy for the movie it's super interesting and it's one of those things that I wish we would kind of get back to you know in terms of like movie going experiences Um, but tell us a little bit about the actual marketing and screenings of the films and you know what y'all kind of think about the effectiveness and kind of the overall mystique that that's built around the movie Jim Oh uh, sure, yeah. I mean, it was uh, Hitchcock was uh, was very involved in in the marketing of this picture, as you know, a lot of his films were. You know, he was very present in the the trailers that you know, that he would appear in, but you know, he was almost fanatical with uh, with Psycho in directing the theaters of of how the film should be shown, and in particular, not letting audience members uh, come in after the screening started. It really just kind of it created a buzz around the the film that people were like, we need to see this it's an experience it was not just another Hitchcock film this was something groundbreaking yeah there was a there was a mystique there because there was this this idea that you're not seeing an ordinary film there are rules involved with seeing this one you know and that alone you know now nowadays when there's a sort of a movie with a twist which I do want to get back to just for 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 a moment but now when there's a movie with a twist you know that sort of piques people's curiosity like okay what's what's this about but at the time, that was kind of a novelty. And, you know, as, as you were just mentioning, Jim, and please elaborate a little more on it, like that really became uh, the hallmark of the marketing for, for this movie. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it was just ultra effective. And I, I know I don't have the uh, you know, the box office numbers uh, in front of me, but it was wildly successful. It, yeah. According to Wikipedia, it was $50 million box office. On an $800,000 budget. Yeah, yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, that's, ridiculous. That's, just, that's, um, that's outstanding. Like, oh my God, yeah. Yeah, at the time, it was one of the most profitable pictures ever made. Because, you know, as mentioned earlier, he, um, and we'll probably touch on this 
again a bit later but he you know he made it with his tv crew he had had some pretty sizable film budgets uh, previously he had made some pictures with great special effects for the time and and great actors and so on he but made this... north by northwest the, the year before this and yeah you know that's his big and expansive thrill ride as, as it gets and he just tones it down completely with this well, basically a single set that you know occupies the latter two-thirds of the movie well i was gonna say what's even bonkers about all of that too is the book this is based off came out literally april 1959 and then this movie is dropping in theaters as early as june 1960 mm-hmm. yeah we're not used to movies with that short of a production anymore. That is it doesn't happen. Crazy well, to H- me. Hitch- Hitchcock. I mean, one of the reasons why he was so prolific—not only directing, you know, his his fifty-some pictures, but seventeen episodes of his television show, as well as mm-hmm. uh, short films for World War II and so on—is that he was a meticulous planner. In fact, he he very famously felt that once his planning for a picture was done with these, you know, uh, meticulous storyboards and, and planning and so on, that he sort of felt his work was done, and he felt the directing part was boring it bored him he didn't enjoy it he often didn't enjoy it sometimes he did but he sometimes felt like he's er he's already made the picture because he could see it in his head he's done yeah he was such a good planner and he was so good about just all the technical aspects that go into filmmaking he could bring these pictures in quickly and under budget he he was right on schedule he didn't fuss about much it was you know get in get the shots get back out and he wasn't very precious about that sort of thing because he knew exactly what 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 he wanted yeah um you know he would famously be able to tell his you know his, his his directors of photography and so on no i want i need this lens not that lens and you know and so on because he could see it without even having to to look he knew exactly what the shot was going to be yeah if you look at the storyboards for a lot of his films which you know he was heavily involved in the the storyboarding process uh you'll you'll see that very often they are spot on with what the finished product becomes like yeah just the composition of a scene was very meticulously detailed in these you know these rather rough looking storyboards but just the visual is just spot on the famous shot of of norman bates walk you know at the the top of the steps uh you know from the house I mean, that was storyboarded and if you look at the, at the the storyboard for that it's basically spot on with what you know ended up in the film i think one of the reasons why that's so important especially to the language the, the language of cinema that he was using and that he helped to further establish is that he didn't just get a shot for the sake of getting a shot he almost always had a reason for the way he was composing his his shots the yeah. way he was cutting as well as editing is the same thing there there's a reason for that. Yeah. With how meticulous he is, and just also maybe even a little bit of like maybe his distaste for the actual directing part of being a director, do you think that kind of added to this controversial or interesting relationship he might have had with his actors and actresses that you always hear about? Like that's like the controversy of Alfred Alfred Hitchcock, and I never knew why this sounds like it is kind of what leads to him having a conflict with them. Absolutely. He had a big issue with so-called method actors who were, were just sort of coming into into vogue um, at one point during his, his career. Cliff being uh, a very yeah. famous example of that. Uh, yes, he did not like Cliff. Yeah. He they didn't, did didn't enjoy working with him at all. So you're yeah. saying he would have hated the hell out of uh, Jared Leto nowadays. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Would not tolerate Absolutely. that. No. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, yeah he, uh, in, in, in some ways, he probably would have been a fabulous stage director. Yeah. Because, you know, he was very much about this is what the blocking is and this is the 
the timing of you delivering your lines and so on. And he, he knew the cadence of line delivery and all that stuff. Yeah, he was not into discovering on set. He was not that kind of a director whatsoever. And so he saw he saw actors as just tools in his toolbox. Yeah, I think he said they're cattle at one point. <laughs> I, I think I remember hearing that quote as like being the infamous quote from him is that actors are cattle. I think I, he, I don't know that he actually said that, but it, you know that's uh, often attributed to him and, and it makes sense yeah. Uh, yeah. that he would have held that viewpoint. But I do, uh, you know, I do it's think... funny, he also had a lot of actors that he worked with uh, repeatedly that just adored him. And that's and, what I also and, have so, read. So it's kind, of a, that, it's kind of a juxtaposition yeah. of what was his relationship really like with some of these actors. And, that... and great actors too, like Cary Grant and, and Grace Kelly and, and so on. And yeah, yeah. One, of, one, of, yeah, one of the greats. I think the his, his reputation as being bad with actors, especially the so-called cattle quote and so on, I think he actually did some of the work to play that up. He, uh, one thing okay. that Hitchcock doesn't get enough credit for on the good side, because he's had some bad traits too um, that we'll get into, but I think he doesn't get enough credit for his very cheeky sense of humor. He had no qualms about playing up sort of the negative views that people had of him or, or being the butt of the joke or making yeah. himself look bad. And so this reputation that he had for being awful with actors, I think he played that up a little bit. I think he enjoyed that. And <laughs> he did that often, uh, you know, his career. He was a notorious practical joker. Um, and I think he made himself sound more awful in that regard than he sometimes was. Well, that's still common in filmmaking today for good and for bad. And those relationships are still very much the same with current filmmakers. I mean, on one end of the spectrum, you've got Clint Eastwood, who notoriously is just one take, move on, keep going. And lots of times his relationships with the actors that he works with are like, wait, 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 I don't feel like I got it. Nope, too late, next setup. And then on the opposite end of that scale, you've got David Fincher, which as much as I love him, he will wear people to the bone because he does 90 takes of the mm-hmm. same thing over and over and over. And both of them will have actors that love working with them and can't stand working with them. But then you also have a giant chunk of people that purposely seek out trying to work with those kinds of people strictly for the challenge and the experience of having to work within those constructs. And that was something that I found out recently that was interesting about Psycho is just going back to that subjective camera view with Janet Lee and him having to tell her like, look, your blocking and how you're going to move in this scene is directly guided by how I am moving my camera. And so her trying to figure out, you know, okay, well, if you're going to move here or you're going to change focus or you're going to pan or whatever, you know, what is my motivation for moving? What is my motivation for like literally stepping over here? And so her having to look at it from a challenge standpoint kind of invigorated her to that role. And, you know, she and Perkins in this movie apparently got along great with Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. Um, And then apparently John Gavin of Vera Miles like kind of got the butt end of that. So I've always heard both things as well, too. But I think it's just a function of how directors tend to work. And that's still very much a thing with directors now for good and bad. But yeah, overall, you know, going back to like the marketing side of this. Yeah, was was there like guerrilla marketing for this film? Not not guerrilla marketing, but like they said, the whole rule was like, look, don't let people in after we've started. Yeah, yeah. Don't let people back out. Don't talk about it. Yeah, the the trailers were very, very stripped down for what the movie was going to be. Yeah, they didn't um, go much away. <laughs> 
that's one of those things that I think is just absolutely genius, but basically doesn't fly today. Just hearing from how many theater chains throw a fit when Christopher Nolan says, hey, I want my sound for Interstellar to be at XYZ levels, and everybody just freaking out because this director is telling the exhibitors how to project the film and, mm-hmm. you know, play the well, sound. Now they're filming scenes just for the trailers, so, like, not to give too much away. That's another thing, yeah, from a marketing standpoint. That's yeah. something, actually, that Hitchcock used to do. Um, yep. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Rope, for instance, the trailer was basically a prelude to the film. It was an entire scene that sets up yep. the premise of the film. So, in theory, you watch the trailer just before Rope, and you see the person who is literally murdered in the opening shot <laughs> of the picture. Yep. Um, it's, it's sort of a setup. That's and, great. And, to roll back to the marketing just just for a moment, I think it's kind of interesting because I feel like the concept of, hey, no spoilers, no spoilers, no spoilers, is a relatively recent phenomenon, mm-hmm. and yet it was there, it was very much present in the buzz around Psycho. There was this understanding that yeah. you don't talk about the picture. They don't want you talking, you know, when you come out of the theater, don't be talking about the, you know, the picture for others. Let others experience that. Yeah. I think in pop culture, we've only become maniacal about spoilers in the M. Night Shyamalan era. Basically, that's yeah. kind of the most modern, recent example of where I can think of it starting was kind of around Sixth Sense. Well, I think Game of Thrones, the TV show, really upped it in the last like six to seven years. As far as like a big yeah. mass pop culture way, yeah, certainly that, that was one of the more recent ones too. Also, just again, I wish we could get back to a lot of that behavior because... Because the constant coming and going and talking and texting and just years of lax theater etiquette and people's habits kind of from their at-home viewing bleeding over to being in a theater full of people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's difficult for films to have that same level of visceral impact when you're not there and stuck and you're having to, like, put your attention on what you're watching. Uh, it makes so much more difference if you're not distracted with everything else going on around you. What's so funny to me is that me knowing... For the most part, like the big pop culture moments of this film, the twist to an extent, just knowing the general story altogether and Norman Bates and everything else. Even then, this movie was still so effective for me. I keep harping on that. I know I do. But even though I'm not back in 1960 myself sitting in a theater having no idea what to expect, it still felt like I was hit by a train when I watched this. And I I thought I knew all the answers. And then like like Roddy Piper said, just when they think they have all the answers, I change the questions. questions. Psycho (laughs) change. Change the question on me. Yep. It's amazing. Yeah. To rope back around to like Hitchcock himself for a brief minute, you know, at this time he had a huge body of work. Again, this is like his 47th film. The TV show was already going. He was well, well known to American audiences by this time. You know, so as far as like his public perception is concerned and the perception of his work at the time, how did this film specifically, how did this film's content and just the shocking graphic? themes of this change those perceptions of him and his work going forward now he he had already started to establish himself as he started to lean more heavily into the macabre through the television show yeah you know he had always had touches of shocking events and you know of course suspense was always always his thing and there were hints of of horror in in some of his earlier pictures you know particularly like the lodger you know his 1927 silent film that's loosely a jack the ripper film you know stuff like that yeah but i think this this coupled with the television show kind of established him as 
a director who would shock audiences, would scare audiences. He had always prided himself in being able to manipulate audiences. Um, he talks about that in interview after interview after interview about the, you know, just how effectively like he he learned and knew the tricks of how to manipulate an audience. But this is where he kind of came into his own as far as how to shock audiences. And I think that is where I think it, it transformed his image because it made him for me growing up. What I knew of Hitchcock was that he was the sort of creepy guy who introduced creepy stories and, you know, that kind of thing. And I think prior to, to Psycho, his reputation didn't lean as heavily into that. He was more about the suspense and, you know, roller coaster ride pictures because the man on the run theme was a very big thing for him. Yeah. But Psycho kind of changed that. Well, I think, you know, le- leading into, into Psycho, though, the, you know, the previous, what, five or so years he had been working on the, uh, you know, Alfred Hitchcock Presents television show, and he would introduce each episode. So the movie-going audience became familiar with him as a personality mm-hmm. prior prior to Psycho coming into their, their movie-going lives. And yeah. so he absolutely was, was in a position where he knew he could manipulate an audience just by the way that he would tell a story. He had a lot of experience doing that, uh, you know, really with uh, with Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Um, it's really interesting that Psycho came about through working with, with his television production crew. And, you know, he was able to, you know, take this suspense story, this horror story, really, and, uh, you know, turn it into, you know, a feature-length film. Yeah, and I think, too, as transgressive as this movie is, even still, and just so much of the subject matter in it, and just how much of it was brand new and shocking for the time, what I still find crazy is this movie is more toned down than the actual novel, which mm-hmm. I read it years and years ago. And there's... Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> really? Yeah, so th- <laughs> it's based on a 1959 novel by Robert Block. It was one of those things where Hitchcock's assistant kind of read some good reviews of it said hey have you heard of this new book no go ahead and see if they can get the rights to it and they scooped up the rights for nine thousand dollars which is nuts by today's standards but the original novel like the shower scene marion crane is beheaded not just stabbed i mean it's it's a lot more brutal and the character of norman bates is also very different he is overweight and middle-aged and he's an alcoholic and definitely more emotionally unstable and he's interested in the occult and pornography and so the the movie as crazy as it was for the time and still shocking is toned down from the book and the book is even more toned down from the real life crimes of Ed Gein oh, that the book was kind of based on absolutely to touch on what you what you just mentioned the portrait of Norman Bates in the book as compared to the film I, I think that change of making him a, an, an, a charismatic handsome guy was an effective change because yeah had he been that sort of out image of Bates from the book where like you said you know he's into the occult and he's sort of disheveled and 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 an unattractive guy and you know and so on it makes him more overtly like oh he's this is the villain like there's the bad guy exactly like this is is someone that I should be fearful of whereas you meet him in the picture and he's sort of outgoing and he's handsome he's a little weird you know he's got his personality tics and certainly that initial conversation in the room with those very stark images of 
of the stuffed birds and so on is a little dark and it's a little strange but he's charismatic though there's still something yeah interesting about him he's ted bundy before ted bundy was even a name totally yeah, yeah. if rather rather than being just being outwardly frightening he's maybe a little unsettling but there's still something interesting about him whereas i think if the, he would have just been drawn in the same way that he's drawn in the book it's like okay now she's in the hotel office with this really weird creep who looks like somebody who's about to murder her yeah um so i think that was a, a an effective change if norman bates had just been this middle-aged frumpy dude it wouldn't have been nearly as shocking or off-putting to have them you know have the audience experience that shower scene it would have fit more with what what you were expecting and you know having him be this charming good-looking guy you don't expect that when he walks into that motel room yeah no certainly yeah plus it also provides a contrast between bates as norman and bates as mrs bates as his mother yeah. because because that contrast becomes a little more stark it lulls the audience into the false idea that oh perhaps mrs bates is a real person who's up there in the house and yeah. really is obsessed with her son not having relationships with other women and, and i'm not entirely sure of the of the answer to this question if that was a pre-existing trope that hitchcock took advantage of of this, this idea of sort of brooding helicopter mom who who kept her son under her wing or if that stems from the way we understand the trope now if that stems more from from psycho i don't know if there's roots in literature to that well or... and and i think the the roots for that may have even come from real life because that's ed gein, uh, ed gein was obsessed with his mom yeah i know with, with, with the actual gein story that was something but yeah I, I, I mean, as far as in pop culture. Yeah, around that time period. Yeah. If that was a thing prior to Psycho or... Because now it's very much a film trope and yeah. a literature trope. You know, this that sort of character, that sort of mother character. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, there might have been... I can't think of any off the top of my head. I mean, and this might be the originator of that as far as mass pop culture awareness is concerned. But yeah, the Ed Gein story, you know, which... I can't imagine that they adapted, at least Joseph Stefano specifically, and I mean, I've heard interviews with him where, you know, he said, I can't empathize and relate to and understand Norman Bates as written in this novel, so I need to change him to make, you know, myself work through this character and therefore have audiences also kind of work through this character, um, and he needs to be a little more understandable and relatable and sympathetic to a degree to kind of lull you in, but I can't imagine that he didn't at least look into a little bit of the Ed Gein stuff, um, mm -hmm. especially with that being kind of famously what the novel was based on and just right. the pop culture awareness of that story in the 50s. So I'm sure some of the mother stuff did kind of come from that to a degree. But that would make, yeah, that would make sense. What I find interesting too is the like cross section between like handsome and ugly. And then charming and creepo. Yeah. You kind of have Norman Bates at the intersection of handsome and charming. And then on the flip side of it, you have Joe Spinell's character from Maniac, Frank Zito, who is the ugly charming, but he's very <laughs> much kind of sort of almost the exact version of Norman from the novel in a lot of ways. And I mean, Maniac is, you know, a ripoff of Psycho in just a ton of other ways as well, too. But yeah, Norman's not 
he's a little bit ticky, like you said, but he's not outwardly as threatening and creepy as somebody like Patrick Bateman from American Psycho would be, where he's got the handsome factor, but he's a complete fucking psychopath. Nor does he have the complete creepy and ugly Leatherface kind of cross-section going where he's just completely abject and not relatable to the audience. Mm -hmm. He's kind of at that perfect intersection where audiences are going to get drawn into him, they're going to be sympathetic about his particular situation and his relationship with his mother, and, oh god, I gotta clean up after mother again and just all of that kind of draws you in and then you get hit with that sledgehammer at the end and you realize it's even more messed up from the beginning and you kind of have to go back and watch it again for that second time to really catch on to a lot of it one of the reasons why that's so effective is you mentioned you know he's at the, the the intersection of these traits that typically would be positive traits is that it really helps sell the idea that you discover in the end that, that this is a broken man yeah he's not evil he's not sort of this just a, a mustache twirling villain this is a broken man he's a deranged man he was psychologically abused at the very least and who knows you know what else and it became twisted around in his mind and, and he's damaged he has damaged goods but uh, you know outwardly he's a normal guy he's yeah someone that you might sit down to have a cup of coffee with so when you hit that sort of explanation at the end which some people find a little controversial because it's very explainy yeah you, you you really understand that you know he's a villain yes but he's not a villain villain he's damaged goods there's 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 something very wrong with him but yeah, he's also he's also quite capable of creating this false narrative about his mother who's up in, mm-hmm. the, in the house. Yeah. And that false narrative allows him to have some level of appearance of normalcy. Mm-hmm. That he's not just this weird dude that's living in this uh, this house up on the hill at this basically abandoned motel. He's got a reason to be there. You know, it's the family business and mm-hmm. you know, he's still taking care of his mother and his mother may be overbearing. So that may explain why he has this bit of a personality tick. It's really interesting that his damaged brain was able to create that and it, and it comes off as completely believable. And, and, and it's important that that's the roots of it, because for Bates, it's not a ruse. It's not something where he's lying to people necessarily. He's not necessarily um, purposely and intentionally putting this fiction together. I think he, he believes it. Yeah. He believes this fiction that he created for himself. And that is what makes it work. That's what makes it all click, both for the audience and for, for him. It makes it believable because it's believable for him. To him, there is Norman and there's Mother. It's not that he's donning mother's clothes in order to throw people off the scent. For him, there's this switch that goes off. He is two people. Yeah, and that's very true of Ed Gein as well. Just the entire fantasy around, I can't handle this lost and there's something broken and fractured about me that I have to control and manufacture my existence in the world that I live in. And he did very much the same thing with his own mother where, you know, notoriously he dug her up, brought her back home, and essentially had the corpse of his mother, like, hanging around the house with him that he would talk to and he would go in and out of her voice voice having conversations back and forth and just having to literally create your own existence from scratch because you fundamentally can't 
handle the reality around you that is terrifying Mm -hmm. that is terrifying anytime that you run into somebody that's like that far down that rabbit hole and and not just that aspect but the fact that there is a methodology and there is a dedication that has to be put into maintaining that as well that grounds that character so much and paints such a more disturbing portrait of that kind of evil Mm -hmm. because he has plan and purpose and prescribed steps to follow up as well too you know it's not just uncontrollable impulse that leads to these flashes of violence again he's ted bundy he's not the wolfman it's very controlled so on that note my viewpoint actually and this is from someone who did not read any more like i haven't read the original novel i haven't read too much analysis on this movie specifically from alfred hitchcock or anthony perkins himself or the author or whoever this all is a testament to anthony perkins by the way i I know like i'm just repeating what millions before me have said but anthony perkins Perkins is phenomenal as Norman Bates in this movie. Just like him and Janet Leigh as as Marion are like two performances for the ages, but especially with him and a character like this. But where I might differ actually from y'all, and this is just my own interpretation from watching it for the first time start to finish, is that yes, he is deranged. Yes, something broke inside him when it came to with his mom and he was obviously abused by his mom in probably more ways than one. I think initially this was kind of an act for him he had to lash out in some way Mm -hmm. but the fact that he can separate the two personalities for this long run a hotel even though it's not being run well but it's still being run yeah (laughs) and he's able to like talk to people and be relatively charming yeah the creep kind of bleeds out from time to time but god knows how long he's actually been doing this for years and years how many people he's might have killed over the years yeah i think he is still not fully guilty of his sins if that makes any sense like I, I feel like this started off as maybe more of an act than what we know now, but it became kind of that Batman Bruce Wayne thing of like, is Bruce Wayne just the mask for Batman or is Batman just the mask for Bruce Wayne? But then the two kind of have just bled together that you can't separate them. And I think that's kind of what happened with him and his mom or his mom personality rather is that maybe at one point he used it as a crux to separate his murderous tendencies from himself mm-hmm. or even as a coping mechanism or whatever even downright to like the tick he has with his hands and like biting his fingernails and and stuff like that all feels like it used to be (laughs) eating candy yeah like that all used to be like an act that he's like i know i'm the villain in this story so i gotta have this tick but then it just happened for so long that it became who he was play a role long enough and you become the role or wear a mask long enough and you become the mask that's just my interpretation without having looked up anything else is that he is an actor who got lost in his part in some ways granted though it had to start somewhere and it started with probably his broken childhood with his mother Mm -hmm. so i mean it's not like he's fully to blame for his actions but i i do think he does deserve the blame i think he had more control than he let on at least for a little while yeah and on that note too i have mixed feelings about the sequels that this movie spawned which anthony perkins is perkins is all four. All four of them is Norman Bates, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he, he directed the third one. You know, obviously none of those three have anything to do with Hitchcock and most of them were made well after he passed. But 
you know, that's that's kind of one of those things that we talk about all the time with sequels and prequels to movies is just, do we need to know all these extra details? Do we need to know all this background information? Do we need to know the origins of how he became him and get all these details? Because the movie as is really gives you everything you need to know mm. without really having to elaborate any further. Mm-hmm. And it just leaves so much more of that to your own mind's imagination to fill in the gaps and kind of dwell on after this movie's over and like we mentioned a second ago the the end is a little exposition dumpy right at the very end but just so much of okay having to fill in all these gaps of his history and how he got to this point you know on one hand yeah you want to know more you want more information and so there's that slight pull to let me check out these sequels and see what happens but then obviously you know some of the details you kind of look back and you're like oh but that's not how i imagined it or that's kind of hokey or whatever you know so there's kind of that weird double-edged sword with it it blows my mind that the author actually wrote sequel novels to this too granted they came much later (laughs) yeah i i I think when when it comes to the sequels and i know that there, there certainly is a community out there that really enjoys them and they're fans of sort of the psycho universe and i i respect that but for me i kind of feel that once that well was dipped into in the first picture there's not really anything more to say exactly i agree the film said everything that needs to be said and then from there you're just kind of doing it again and yeah while that could be okay in some instances um let's say for instance something that um derek that you mentioned earlier though i don't remember if we were recording at the time but you had, um, had mentioned uh mad max fury road yeah, yeah which yeah. basically is you know the second half of the road warrior just done again but it's also done like 10 times better than it was in the road warrior so that's an instance where i'm like okay yeah you can revisit that idea again because you now have 30 years of filmmaking experience behind you and the road warrior was a bigger picture there was a bigger story there well and it's the same director still too that's like the important part yeah yes that's the thing with with the the psycho sequels you know if hitchcock's not involved i'm really not that interested it's you know it's like jaws if spielberg's not involved with jaws 2 through four or whatever they were yeah. i'm not care. interested <laughs> yeah it's just a film by a master doing master work yeah. and and hitchcock did no, show us that nobody that, else is going to approach that on a sequel yeah. and 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 he did show us what he would do in revisiting his own work because he did with uh, the man who knew too much yeah you know he had directed a version of that in the 1930s and then decades later he said all right i'm going to do the man who knew too much again and he remade his own picture <laughs> that's great that a director remakes his own work it's yeah and arguably better yeah better yeah <laughs> i like the second version better yeah except for one particular aspect that comes in the the last quarter sort of the the violent climax where there's a in the the original there's a big sh- um, fight in a church and a shootout yeah. and so on um yeah the second is is superior to the first in virtually every way it's also like 45 minutes longer which is crazy yeah. <laughs> well, and, and on that note, Hitchcock's Psycho is a standalone masterpiece. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was too much of a masterpiece that, like, of course, it's going to get sequelized. But, I mean, more than most other franchises, this movie just... I don't even need to see the sequels of Psycho to know that they're vastly different than what this is. This stands alone. Well, the last thing I'll say about the sequels is there's only so many times Norman Bates can snap and lose it again. <laughs> and, like, go on a killing spree. Like, there's only just so 
many times that like you can do that all over again before it just becomes old hat. The only piece of media I am curious about from the I guess the Psycho franchise is the recent Bates Motel TV series from like 2013 through 2017. I've heard good things about that. Actually is real solid stuff because it completely reimagines what the Bates and the Psycho thing is. It's not trying to recapture what Hitchcock did. It's its own thing sort of rooted sure. in a very similar mythology. And I think that's why I think it, it, it works. I think I think the reason why sequels to Hitchcock Psycho don't work for me necessarily is because Psycho itself is rooted in this idea of again, you know, vulnerability and surprise. It's not about being a slasher picture, even though now it's sort of considered the dawn of slasher pictures. Yeah. But, you know, you take something like, let's say, Friday the 13th franchise, and the joy in that franchise is simply watching to see what creative ways all these dumb teenagers are going to get cut down, right? That is what the pictures are, are about, to sort of watch that uh, macabre creativity going on and so on. Yeah. But that's not what Psycho is. Psycho is not about, uh, oh gosh, how's Norman going to kill this Victim. How's Norman going to kill that victim, or how's he going to snap this time? That is, that's not the heart and soul of Psycho. Yeah, because there are only two murders that we see on screen. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like a bloodbath. It's really a pair of fused together character studies. Yes. Um. So I think sequels that rely on the suspense of oh, now these innocent people are around Norman, and how's he going to murder them this time? What's going to set him off? That's straying pretty far afield from what makes Psycho tick. Yeah, and that's slashers becoming such a popular thing in the mid to late 70s and especially throughout the 80s. Most of them were just designed to turn profit. So there was very little like artistic endeavor behind them at the end of the day. And to that point too, knowing Hitchcock and knowing like what made him tick, he wasn't interested in that. He's interested in all the underlying psychology and character stuff that's kind of moving this plot forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't think he ever would have made a straightforward horror movie necessarily. I mean, this movie, I'm sure he probably considered it to be more in the suspense thriller kind of genre. We now look at it as kind of the root of so many modern horror movies, but that's a different level from what I would bet he's probably pursuing with the making of this movie. It's all about the psychology. It's all about the taboo of so much of the Mm -hmm. subject material as well (laughs) that he was interested in it's so funny he certainly would not have been interested in the um shot for shot remake that uh, gus van sant did uh, yeah in 1998. <laughs> i forgot um, all- oh god no, i honestly, I honestly um, got all about that remake until watching this and prepping for the show i forgot freaking vince vaughn please Norman yeah, Bates yeah. That. and I, I like gus van sant a lot I like Vince Vaughn a lot, but it just, it didn't work. That was a weird misstep experiment. Yeah, Yeah, it really was. Especially for a director who generally, I'm with you guys on Van Sant, who generally is pretty impeccable with his quirky, weird projects that he tends to do. One thing is that I think sometimes gets overlooked when it comes to Hitchcock in general, and certainly to keep it focused on Psycho, it definitely applies to Psycho, is that he was known as sort of a populist director. He brought the audience that's the reason why he was able to make uh, pictures year in and year out is because he always packed the seats he always built theaters he always his pictures made money you know he was a popular mainstream director but he was also a subversive director who was a lot more cognizant of the idea of theme and subtext 
than he was initially given credit for. Yeah. I think Truffaut finally started to tease that out and to introduce the idea, at least in Europe, that, hey, this guy over here in the United States who's making these mainstream suspense pictures is actually doing something that's a lot more nuanced than people are giving him credit for. And I think that's certainly the case in Psycho, where is it a is it a suspense picture? Yes. Is it a slasher picture? Yes. It is it is all those things. Is it mainstream and popular and easy for anyone to just jump into and enjoy? Yes to all those things. But damn, there's a lot going on when it comes yeah. to subtext and theme and, and, and character and you know all these layers. That's the case in a lot of his filmography and certainly it's the case in Psycho. And I think that gets overlooked. Um, especially when you make more, I don't want to insult fans who are fans of the Psycho franchise, but, you know, sequels that are a little more empty in that regard, that, that focus a little more on just the surface trappings as opposed to all that nuance that's happening underneath the surface. Yeah. There are a lot of the, like, roller coaster aspect of the original movie just with none of the substance and nuance underneath. Well, and I'm sure there's some fun, like, from a trash horror standpoint, because Aaron and I have covered plenty of trash horror. From that standpoint, yes. Like, seeing Norman beat Jeff Fahey to death with a guitar is <laughs> hilarious, but, yeah. like, you know, am I going to take that seriously? No. No, not on the level of Hitchcock Psycho, um... And it's just so funny to me that so much horror, not even just modern horror, but horror through all of the decades to follow, borrows so many tropes that are established here. And on that note, I wanted to talk a little bit about the actual horror of this movie, specifically with Anthony Perkins' portrayal. Oh, yet again, Norm Bates. I know I keep coming back to him, but I mean, he just blew my mind away with this performance. Like I've mentioned earlier, I play horror video games, which, especially nowadays, modern video games, do a great job of visuals. To this day, even now, two jump scares that got me, and they got me good in this film, and then neither one of them was actually the shower scene. The one was when the private investigator is walking up the stairs, and then there's that shot from up head. Yeah. It kind of looks like a feminine figure, like could be the mom, walks out and stabs him, and he like falls to his death down the stairs, and the figure jumps on top of him and stabs him some more. And then at the climax of the film, when she flips around the true mother, that wasn't what scared me, but then it goes back to the entranceway of the basement and Norman Bates in his mother regalia jumps out and has that maniac look in his face mm -hmm. almost like yeah. that smile of pure insanity screeching with his mother's voice going. screeching yeah. with his mother's <laughs> voice I'm getting goosebumps right now just talking about that again like that scene was even now such a good effective horror jump scare scene it blows my mind that so many movies haven't studied that like this oh, movie they have that's the thing that stairway scene is terrific is like a perfect case for pacing and editing and timing yes, yeah and it's been ripped off endlessly i mean like i can go immediately to exorcist 3 my point is like hitchcock makes it look so easy in this movie yeah <laughs> and i know it's not i know it's not at all but he makes it look so damn easy and like yes this is such a groundbreaking movie but this movie almost feels like it doesn't even realize it's groundbreaking it just is nailing all the things it needs to nail so well that it just seems like it's a master at work but then turn around and it is groundbreaking we have all these things imitating it yeah and nothing can seem to capture the same magic or very few films 
systems can capture that same magic. Going back to what Eric and Jim were both saying earlier, the fact that he planned everything so meticulously and knew what he wanted, but not just that, but he had 40-something movies of practice beforehand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that says a lot as well, too. But he you know, was very involved in the editing process, which not a lot of directors are. Uh, most directors are just kind of like, all right, I did my work, hands off, step away. Some are definitely more intimate with their editing. He certainly was. I mean, he was a like down to the exact frame kind of editor. Yeah. And those scenes where it's the shadow, like in the, the shower and then in that hallway scene at the top of the stairs where you don't see who it is doing the stabbing and the attacking. Was that Anthony Perkins? No. Like in those shadow scenes? was that Or was that a stunt double or who was that? From what I've read, that was two or three different doubles. Mm. Yeah, it's my understanding that uh, Anthony Perkins was not present for the shower scene. Oh, oh uh, yeah, wow. the, okay. he was he was uh, he was off in production on a on a stage play at the time. Yeah, from what I remember reading, it was two or three doubles, and in the shower scene specifically, it is a woman doubling. Yeah, and then when you do see the hand with the knife, that's famously Hitchcock's hand doing the stabbing. The doubling, it's a woman in that shower scene. The scene where Norman carries mother down the stairs from the bedroom, that's supposedly a little person in the dress and everything. So, I mean, I've, I've heard three or four different things, but that was something he wanted there to be some ambiguity around. It was not seeing Anthony Perkins' definitive kind of outline mm-hmm. and his stature and everything. They He wanted there to be some mystery around that. So every time they show Mother, it, she's a slightly different scale just to kind of keep it iffy. I do want to touch on something, you know, you were talking earlier about how sort of impeccably he sets up these scenes, you know, the stairway scene in particular, which um, I think is one of the great murders, not just in his filmography, but just in cinema in general and so in, on. In cinema, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I um, agree with and, you. and his meticulous planning and so on. I, I think one of the things that was advantageous for him is that he got his start in the silent film era. He was a silent film director before he became, you know, a big Hollywood director. Yeah. So he was sort of forced to learn the language of film purely from a visual standpoint. He had to learn just how to tell stories visually. He was actually a, uh, a title card designer before he became a director. So, mm-hmm. you know, he was working on film sets and just, you know, absorbing the entire process. To really, you know, begin his directorial life doing pictures that were strictly visual in nature. And of course, you know, at the time you didn't even know necessarily what the score was going to be because, you know, often you would have live musicians who were playing along with the film there right there in the theater and they didn't always necessarily have a written score. In fact, they rarely did. He's learning this very visual language and he continued to use that even after the transition into talkies and so on. And you see in a lot of his pictures, Psycho certainly being one of them, but you know, you could think of a a great number of shots where he tells so much of the story purely through visuals. There's the very famous shot in Suspicion with the lit from inside glass of milk being brought up a uh, a flight of stairs. There is a scene in Shadow of a Doubt, you know, looking down a staircase and you see staircases. Joseph Joseph (laughs) Cotton is framed in this doorway and, and, and just in that shot alone, it speaks volumes about the relationship between these two characters and, and so on. All these lessons that he learned and all these things that he built over the years, he sort of used in Psycho in the most austere, sparse, stripped down TV production way possible to great effect. 
Yeah, and it's very much a getting back to the basics type of filmmaking. I was just about to say that because this film really isn't afraid to like take its time when it needs to. Either focus on dialogue or more quiet, suspenseful moments. It's small, too, compared yeah. to so many of his early movies with these huge sets and massive, crazy costume budgets and everything else. This was a very stripped-back movie. I mean, imagine the only director I can really think of as a direct analog today would be like, imagine if Spielberg just halted everything going on and was like, hey, I'm going to go to Blumhouse and I'm going to make a horror movie for a million dollars. You know, like that's the most equivalent thing I can think of now is somebody that has that much of a body of work. Yeah. That just says, I want to do something really stripped down and basic. Yeah. I forget that this is so late in his career and he made it for a cheap budget even back then. Well, he probably saw it as a challenge too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like a a band who was himself like that. A, a band who's become a, a big band doing these big bombastic, you know, arena albums who decide, you know, we're going to do a back to basics, stripped down rock and roll record yeah. the way we used to make them. And the most impressive thing is actually nailing it, actually being able to do yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that's that's the hard part, isn't it? That's the trick. Once you've moved past that part of your artistic career. It's kind of hard to recapture that rawness. Well, for most other cases, it's the complete opposite, where so many directors do most of their best work right at the beginning of their careers, and they have that hunger and that creative drive, and there's just something about the restrictions of working on a smaller budget with less time, with less access to resources and everything else where you really have to get your creative juices going and you know just thinking of like so many of the big horror directors specifically Romero with Night of the Living Dead Toby Hooper with Texas Chainsaw Massacre John Carvin with Halloween I mean those were very low budget independent doing it by the seat of our pants kind of movies and it's some of their best work and then a lot of directors like we're just saying toward the end of their careers kind of start getting into that lull space where the creative drive is just kind of drying up and they don't have a whole lot lot left to say and you know often they have trouble getting access to money and resources to make stuff even you know so that that happens the money issue has always been a big issue with scorsese is that yeah. getting that funding you you mentioned directors who when they're young and, and and hungry they create these groundbreaking pictures and then they don't have anything left to say and i know it's not horror but one of the first directors that sprang to mind for me was coppola yeah in the 70s there was <laughs> absolutely arguably nobody better or at the very least he's like in the top five there and you know in the overall and then he just hit like sometimes i see i see people say oh i you know i would love for coppola to go back and direct again let him do something now and it's like i don't think you really want that like yeah be careful careful what you wish for because have you seen anything he's done in the last 30 years (laughs) you probably don't want that yeah like even all self-contained in star wars like george lucas same thing like was such a young hungry director had with american graffiti and a new hope thx 1138 and yeah yeah and and not to get totally off on a side tangent but there's been this revisionist history History, that George Lucas was never a good director and I completely reject that because of the pictures that you just mentioned oh I yeah, mean, that's, yeah. American, yeah American graffiti is fantastic yeah no he he made great films yeah. back in the day yeah absolutely did 100 percent yeah but he you know yeah. didn't have any reason to maintain his chops and he became more of an idea guy as opposed to a director guy whereas um a director guy I can't believe I just said that <laughs> well like we were saying I think a lot like Hitchcock and certainly James Cameron and some of the other contemporaries of that whole generation i think they all just became more obsessed with the process of making movies and not so much storytelling
storytelling. And I think that's the thing that Hitchcock, even this late in his career, still excelled at, where he had all the technical prowess you could hope for, but he could still tell a damn good story and know how to execute on that as well, too. That's so much of, like, keeping both sides of that going are important to filmmaking. And so many people just lose one or the other, it seems like. But that's certainly, like, one of those things that just really makes this movie still that much more impressive is it was so late in his career, but this was a very experimental, stripped-down, like, get-back-to-the-basics kind of thing, you know? And it, it just makes the movie that much more effective because it's relatable, like we've talked about. It's something that you can see yourself being in a similar situation. Not a period movie. It's not set in another country. There's not this kind of higher plot and spy stuff going on around, but it's just a woman who's tired of her mundane life and makes a bad mistake and things spiral out of control from there. Yeah, that's really just, you know, that's Hitchcock getting back to his his roots of, you know, just everyday people finding themselves in these these uh, rather bizarre situations and, and what yeah. what entails. Yeah, but, from one mistake, know, yeah. Right, but, uh, but, you know, as far as, like, the challenge that, uh, you know, that Hitchcock put on himself to make this film with the television crew, you know, he would do that sort of thing. He had already proven to himself that he could put himself in a situation where, you know, the example that I'm thinking of, of right now is, is the film rope. Yeah. He, he basically said, well, I want to, I want to film a movie that appears to be one continuous take. And how do we do this? And it's not anywhere close to a perfect film, but it, it's, it's, it's very enjoyable and very interesting. And, and the camera work though is, is really kind of incredible because it's this single apartment set and yep. back then you know, and he chose to film it in color so they had this gigantic refrigerator sized camera that they had to move around this apartment and he sets these limitations on himself and then finds ways to get the creativity to come spring from that limitation yeah. and, and he had a, a long history of, of doing that and we've touched on it a couple times so just to clarify you know and sort of contextualize it for people psycho was filmed as we've mentioned a couple times with his tv crew he had just come off north by northwest which was a huge production and he kind of wanted to do something back to basics so he had already been directing episodes here and there with his tv folks and psycho was in some ways sort of a break for him he was just like i want to do something a little different i want to do something a little more simple and i want to challenge myself which he had this repeated history every every few years you know um he needed to do that in 1944 he did what i think is probably his most overlooked picture lifeboat which the whole film is set in a lifeboat literally the whole picture is in a lifeboat it's terrific (laughs) a rope was in 40 um seriously anyone who has not seen lifeboat by far one of his one of his most overlooked pictures. I think the, one of the reasons why people don't see it often is because there's a rights thing. It's not often easily accessible on home release. Yeah. But yeah, then he did Rope and then Rear Window in 1954. He's like, well, what if uh, what if we did this entire picture in this artificial apartment set and so on? So Psycho was sort of a part of that lineage of these pictures where he purposely set limitations on himself solely in order to challenge his ability to then overcome those, those limitations. And he's such a master that despite the limitations, especially with Psycho's case it is a masterpiece classic that's forever regarded in cinema history and it was all just probably starting off as like how can I challenge myself with this film yeah imagine the confidence that he had going into the project (laughs) after you know 40 some films of constantly challenging himself you know you know you're going to be able to overcome your obstacles if you have that body of work behind you 
Yeah, it's like Tom Brady going into the postseason of the NFL. Like, we've been here before. Yeah, Jim and I used to have discussions about whether or not Hitchcock would embrace, you know, digital effects and so on, because he was he was always very open to embracing the cutting edge of whatever filmmaking technology was. He wanted to immediately, when something new came out, he wanted to push it to its limits and figure out what he could do with it. But there's a part of me that thinks that because now digital technology really ensures that there are no limits, I wonder if he wouldn't be turned off by that because suddenly he would have no limitations whatsoever. Um, I think he kind of thrived on, on, on limitations. I think he needed them. To stay on Psycho, one of the reasons why the shower scene, the famous shower scene, is so powerful is because he knew where the, that, that line was as far as censorship boards and what you could and couldn't get away with, what you could and couldn't show. And he brought things right to that line. But because yeah. he understood the limitations he was working within, he was able to suggest things that you weren't actually seeing. You know, very famously, people think they see nudity when they don't they think they see actual stabs when these things aren't there so if he were allowed to just go ahead and go for it would that be as effective i don't know that it would be yeah i mean again this is just my newbie take but everything i've gathered from watching psycho and from what y'all have already talked about with him in our episode here Hitchcock screams to me as someone who loves practicality to the point where it doesn't become a detriment. Mm -hmm. And I think with digital filmmaking is that digital filmmaking has gone so far beyond that it does detriment some directors. Like again, going back to George Lucas, like with the prequels, I think Hitchcock would have been able to see when it took that turn to just becoming a crutch and a liability rather than something that's a practical tool. And I think he still would have just backed off that could be. Though though Aaron mentioned James Cameron, and he's actually a great example of somebody who embraces the digital technology, but uses it in a way that takes advantage of what it can do without necessarily using it as a crutch. That's a good point. Well, too, Cameron top to bottom constructs his movies from a digital standpoint now, at least. Obviously, we can't think for Hitchcock and assume what he would and wouldn't do if we could just transplant him to now. But he's always worked in artifice. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's always worked in this is a fake set. That is the gimmick of this movie. You as the audience who are aware to any degree, you know, know this is a fake set. Um, Again, Rear Window, you know, this is all artifice. This is essentially a stage play that I'm putting on for you. But you can guarantee that you could get down to like the most minute corner of that set and find cracks in the concrete and garbage and stuff and just detail throughout all of it you know rope again being another example of it's completely a set it's all a set there's backdrops in the windows and everything i think he's always embraced artifice but there's still a tangibility to i can see it i can touch it i can put my hands on it the actors in the scenes can see and interact with these things you know they can look out a fake window and see a real background mm-hmm. real you know in air quotes yeah I, I i just have trouble picturing him like trying to direct people in tons of green screen like i really do yeah i mean a lot of it's just again like the meticulous planning and vision that goes into a lot of it i mean i'm sure like push come to shove yeah he could probably just throw a bunch of people on a green screen and tell them what to do and blocking and everything else and still pull off a perfectly competent movie i just think he wouldn't want to film that way you know mm-hmm. there's definitely yeah. a tangibility to his filmmaking 
filmmaking that's so, so, so fun to watch going back now with everything we're used to and looking at something that, even though it's fake, you can feel it, you can touch it. Now, this is going in a different direction. Something I do want to cover before we we wrap everything up, it ties into the shower scene and everything. And I know we had talked about this, at least you and I did, Aaron, of stuff we wanted to ask y'all about. This movie, while it has the violence against women, or at least a woman in this case with the shower scene, well, he also attacks her sister at the end of the movie. While it has the sexuality and also violence against women, things that are more misogynistic, especially now with us reevaluating a lot of stuff. At the same time, I go back to like the actual performances of the two female leads and their characters, the way they're written. They're very competent. They're intelligent. They're sharp. Mm. They're just everyday people. They do make mistakes, but at the same time, they are also like very intelligent in this movie and, and is very investigative and is very much like, I can't let this go. I know something's wrong. Really, when almost when no one else is. Mm-hmm. The freaking sheriff in this movie is like a complete <laughs> joke as far as sheriffs go. Yes. But in that aspect, while there is that violence and sexuality, I think these are strong female characters, especially for that time period in 1960. How did Hitchcock's personal opinions kind of shape that? How did this threat of misogyny affect the rest of the genre going ahead? I can tell you that Jim and I certainly caught some heat for our second book, Hitchcock's Villains, because we made the case that Hitchcock's own sort of obsessions come through in his pictures and not always in a positive way. Right. And certainly his relationship with with women and the way he depicted or more specifically directed women or dealt with them off screen has been reevaluated in recent years and not not in a way that makes that is very charitable towards him. Yeah. And right. I think we have to be honest with ourselves about who and what he was in in, in that regard. He did typically have very strong female characters. But I don't think that having female characters necessarily means that there weren't also threads of misogyny in in, in his work. And with Psycho in particular, you do wonder to what extent it planted the seeds for a lot of what the slasher genre took going forward, where often it was women being victimized by psychopaths with knives. It's like you have that aspect being kind of the forefront. And then I guess the more positive one that kind of takes a backseat but it is a common trope of the final girl quote unquote yeah kind of all feels like it comes from this and like again this movie does this interesting mix of you could view it as misogynistic towards women with like the shower scene and the violence and sexuality but you could also see it as like these are really strong female characters especially for that time period and it's interesting that he was able to kind of meld both of those things into this one movie certainly he didn't invent the idea of women as victims that is as old as time and in film certainly going back to the the on a film um that was often yeah. the case you know you've got tied to the train tracks yeah exactly of, yeah, you yeah, know yeah, king yeah. kong and you know and so on so on and so forth and and the and the blend of violence and sexuality certainly predates hitchcock as well but he made it much more stark than it ever was before he, he underlined it in a way that i think a lot of audiences possibly hadn't seen it as starkly as that before where he was drawing that very direct connection between sexuality and violence because you know you see janet lay in in the shower you know she's she's a very attractive woman and then she's in this very vulnerable circumstance that for that time seeing these glimpses of a woman in in, in a shower wasn't common wasn't typical the movie begins with her having like kind of an affair with yeah like and they just have had sex or at least we're hooking up in in a hotel room like that's how the movie begins and purposely in black lingerie yeah yeah no i I think hitchcock he certainly would vacillate between women being empowered and then also serving as 
you know, the prototypical victim. But I mean, you can go back like one of uh, our our favorite uh, Hitchcock films, uh, Shadow of a Doubt, 1943. I love uh, that one. Oh, it's so great. Teresa Wright is the the female lead in that movie, and she is abs- She carries that movie. She is absolutely empowered as a young woman to you know find out the truth about what's happening with her uncle and it's really you know kind of kind of fascinating to you know to look at it from the perspective okay it's you know it's 77 years ago that there was this young woman that was not just going to bow down to you know her uncle and you know accept that he is what he is uh, or what he's you know, what he claimed to be and that's just one of of many examples of uh women in in, in hitchcock's films that aren't just a stereotype the 39 yeah. steps and suspicion and for a director who has a questionable relationship when it comes to he, he and women complicated yeah yeah, yeah complicated i think yeah that, that's a better word um certainly again one it's it's one that we are now reassessing in current times and i think rightfully so fairly so we should be he unlike some of the other directors that i've written about like kurosawa and scorsese what you know alice doesn't live here anymore is his picture with a female lead and you know kurosawa for the most part you know no female leads hitchcock routinely had female leads in his pictures sometimes co leads but not always co-leads often they were the star of of his pictures and they were Grace they were Kelly smart Dylan for murder oh, absolutely yeah, they were smart yeah. intelligent women who had control of their lives lived independent lives you know and so on now again he would then often turn that knob and victimize them but he did suspense pictures so that's part of the genre that he worked in as jim just said taking these ordinary people and then putting them in situations and scenarios that would push them to their limits it's why the man on the run thing was such a big thing for him because it's taking an ordinary person and then putting them um, in in the situation that tests them and forces them to take action well on one hand you have marion's death and that's surprising and shocking but then on the other you have the private investigator milton who comes off as a very like hard-nosed detective style guy Mm -hmm. and then he gets brutalized too in a very shocking sudden thing granted it's not as sexualized but it it is very much and you were not expecting this to happen to this person that was that thing with hitchcock that uh the police the authority figures were very often uh depicted in in less than flattering light that uh, you know they weren't competent or uh, capable. Yeah, he had a disdain for authority in general, but he specifically didn't like law enforcement. Oh, again, I got to go back to Deputy Sheriff Al Chambers <laughs> yes. in this movie. Is the worst deputy, I think, in cinema history that I've seen. <laughs> yeah, of all the incompetent movie cops, he might be one of the worst. He makes the writing on the wall for himself when they like are talking to him in his house of like, well, he did do that one thing and no one's really seen the body of his mother and it was dug <laughs> up the other day, but no, no. It's harmless. You guys could address this far better than either Jim or I could because you're both very immersed in the, the horror genre. But I wonder to what extent the idea of the meeting point between sexuality and violence and specifically sort of the misogyny that sometimes goes hand in hand with that is now a discussion in the wider horror community. Well, I think the first part of that is people are aware of it now, you know, at least more culturally in our real lives on a daily standpoint aware of it now and there has certainly been a lot of popular media to kind of pick apart and analyze that you know i know this is years and years back but even like men women and chainsaws Mm -hmm. 
Um, and her talking about Leatherface's chainsaw being obviously a substitution for male genitalia. And then you literally have Toby Hooper a few years later doing Texas Chainsaw 2, fully aware of all mm-hmm. of this, poking fun at even that idea and the self-awareness behind that. So I think a lot of it is just step one is people are more aware of it. And so you don't have as much outright blending of that happening without yeah. there being a very specific purpose at this point. But there are definitely still movies coming out where the filmmaker clearly does not have a self-awareness around what they're putting on screen and what they're writing. So, I mean, it still happens, certainly. Yeah. I think people are just more aware of it and call attention to it more readily. Is the whole sort of a rape-revenge subgenre still a thing? You know, like, I, I spit on your grave and, you know, and so on. Is that still... Not as much as it used to be, just because I think it's kind of gotten to the point now where it's gross and just people don't want to see mm-hmm. it anymore. You know, I'm sure that there are definitely still some, like, really low-budget Z-grade movies that are kind of doing that same thing. But, you know, now what you're seeing thankfully, is you have way more female voices in the industry. You have way more female writers, way more female directors, and you have movies that are from a female perspective specifically, and they might be doing a lot of the same stuff and, you know, working through a lot of the same tropes, but it's with a purpose and it's with a message and it's with a different viewpoint on it. So a good example would be the recent movie Revenge, written, directed, female star very much takes that whole idea and flips it and it's a very feminine driven version of that story so that's been another big part of it recently is just there are more women in the industry working now and telling their stories and working through a lot of the same stuff well and with that even though horror has had its trials with uh, misogyny and everything else like probably most things have something that kind of caught me off guard when starting this podcast is how how early on horror specifically tackled some of these subject matters that are even to this day kind of taboo mm-hmm. like when we covered Black Christmas that I know I brought up a couple times already back from 1974 and the original Omen both those movies actually discussed abortion and that's then, right and back in 1974 yeah that's right and didn't like beat around the bush about didn't it. Like, beat around the bush at all discuss the notion of abortion in the 70s and especially with Black Christmas talk about another competent female lead there's another one right there I'm sorry I forget that actress's name Aaron Olivia Hussey yes Olivia Hussey hello Hello? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hello. But yeah, I think horror has always been kind of a couple steps ahead of the curve when it comes mm-hmm. to being more progressive. Well, in terms of especially just discussing our social fears and anxieties and being kind of like an outlet and a pressure valve for those that things. That makes sense, yeah. And just a lot of that fear and anxiety in society coming out and horror being kind of the perfect delivery system for that that you don't typically see in so many other genres. And it turns out a lot of fans of horror are women. Yeah. yeah. A lot of them. Well, and one more thing I was going to say is that also it, I think it's just kind of what is happening in pop culture in general, not just in horror mm-hmm. movies or filmmaking, rather just everything. Because, I mean, I know even back over 10 years ago, I want to say Gail Simone brought up the idea of fridging women in 
comic books. Yes. And like that was kind of a groundbreaking feminist perspective when it comes to comic books. And that's a trope that's been around forever. Right. Just somebody yeah. finally kind of codifying it and identifying it for what it is and pointing out like, hey, this is a crutch and too yeah. much storytelling, you know, that we need to kind of work on and, and fix. To roll it back to Cycle for a moment, I mean, one of the reasons why I, I posed that, that question to you guys is because in looking at that theme and looking at that idea in Psycho and in Hitchcock's overall mindset, I think it's it's kind of interesting to note that Psycho is bookended by two films prior and two films after are his two, what, what some consider his two most revealing films, Vertigo, two films prior, and Marnie, two films after. And both are films about yeah. obsession and a man controlling and molding and reshaping a woman into his preferred image. And they're on either side of Psycho, this movie about a woman who takes control of her own life, takes control of her own sexuality and her own independence with, with money and goes off on her own and is slaughtered halfway through the picture. So I'm not necessarily saying that there's something there, but I think it's probably fodder for a pretty lengthy discussion when you contextualize it in that way, when you see what are the themes Hitchcock was grappling with in that time. You know, if you set Psycho next to Marnie and you set it next to Vertigo, it puts a different thrust on what you might pull out of Psycho. Jim, I think you might agree with that, yeah. but especially I know Marnie, you're a big advocate for it as a brilliant film. Uh, yeah, I, I would, would agree with the, that assessment. It's really really kind of an interesting contrast uh when you when you look at that vertigo was what uh two years before psycho and marnie was what four years later yep. um but you know it's still that two films apart and was it uh, was it the birds that was right after psycho yes yeah okay. um that was yeah. what 63 so 63, a few years yeah. later but um it's always a, a fascinating topic to Wait, you know to look, and, to look into what what Hitchcock's obsession was with uh, with women and, and, and how and, they and were the, depicted. And the birds, which immediately follows Psycho, one of the cases that a lot of film scholars make and critics make is that sort of the subtext of the birds is that the attacks are rooted in Tippi Hedren's sexuality, that really it's about the fact that this woman is sort of invading this man's life and the mother figure is upset about that. And she's a very liberated sexual woman, at least for the time, 1963. Yeah. And this is what is sort of prompting this attacks. It's, it's sort of like Mother Nature is rebelling against the idea of this sexually liberated, very free woman. Yeah, because I forget that she is the main focal point of that movie, too, because mm -hmm. it's been a long time since I watched that. But yeah, she's also basically the lead of that movie yeah absolutely and and these strange attacks don't begin happening until she arrives in this beautiful town bodega bay and you know goes to this gentleman's house where the mother does not approve that she's there and she's a you know young attractive single woman who lives an independent life of, of her own and then suddenly um you know there's that first moment in the boat where she's attacked by this one stray bird and it's like oh gosh that's an odd thing to happen and then it sort of spirals out of control yeah. from there <laughs> You know, Hitchcock yeah. was very aware of the subtext of his pictures. You know, we mentioned that earlier. So when film scholars talk about this and say, this is what The Birds is, The Birds isn't really about Mother Nature gone awry. This is what it's really about. It's kind of difficult to say you're reading too much into it because Hitchcock was very much about building these more subtle and nuanced themes into his pictures. So, yeah. you know, again, when you, when you look at Psycho um, and then you look at the context of everything else that's immediately surrounding it, these things that were on his mind during that time these obsessions with uh you know with with women 
women and controlling them and being the one that was the master of their image and their sexuality. It makes you wonder if he wasn't making a little more of a statement about Marion Crane and having her murdered halfway through the movie. Yeah, and he's one of those directors where separating the art and the artist is difficult because of how much of himself and his own, like I said, obsessions and his own inner psychology and just the things that he's kind of pulling out yeah. of himself. You know you're watching an Alfred Hitchcock movie when... Yes. You, yeah, and you know that it's a very direct line into his own mind and his own thinking in a way that you don't always get with a lot of directors even a lot of horror directors you don't quite get that he's brutally open about it like y'all have said he's honest about it like it's not always a kind viewpoint but it is his viewpoint he is putting himself in his work I mean especially with Psycho Um, another thing that makes me laugh so much is it feels almost like popular serial killers in the 70s also borrowed from Psycho almost like (laughs) horror movies and cinema yeah. in general art inspires real life because uh, it was just it's just bonkers like a lot of the similarities i saw throughout it again like with anthony perkins performance it, it just screamed ted bundy to me the entire time uh, so much of what you ted bundy could have now. absolutely been inspired by norman bates yeah <laughs> totally yeah Oh yeah, and he he was arrogant and full of himself enough that you could totally see him taking that performance and saying like, I can do that, I can do the same thing, but I'm gonna do it for real. Like you could it's totally see like do it better yeah. him doing that. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. like he he had a mother thing as well, and then I mean even if you think about uh, it wasn't Gacy, but it was one of the other big ones. Literally one of the surviving victims they had said that he was watching like The Exorcist three in his apartment. Think that would have been Dahmer. That was Dahmer. Yeah. And that sounds like such a hacky cliche, like (laughs) writing of a fictional serial killer. But yet here we are in real life and that's what's happening. Yeah. Speaking of Bundy, one of the most just awful fucked up quotes that he threw out after he had been captured in interviews and interviews. And this is what I think of when I watch this movie. He said, like, the first time that you kill somebody, you're meticulous about everything and you scour over every little detail and make sure that everything's perfect. And then the third time you wonder oops did I leave behind the lug wrench you know and and that is one of those things about Norman that is still terrifying about his character just you see the methodology and the steps that he takes to clean up after Mm -hmm. mother and how meticulous and how like perfect all the steps are and him hiding the car in the swamp and just that moment of panic where he thinks oh is it not gonna work this time and it's interesting because on one hand you could say maybe this is the first time he does it but you don't feel that you feel like this is probably the 10th time he's done I was gonna say like this movie is the tail end of his killing spree in my opinion yes and even though he is being kind of sloppy it still is meticulous enough to be like oh he's still pretty maniacal and he's obviously done this before and that's terrifying because there's just such a banality to it there's just such a disconnect like okay I gotta just go through this routine again like okay I gotta clean up after mother one of the haunt, most haunting scenes is seeing marion crane's dead body like after she pulls down the shower curtains when it falls to the ground and like blood's like dripping out everywhere and being washed on the drain Chocolate the figure syrup. 
the, yeah, chocolate <laughs> yeah. syrup. It was chocolate syrup. I was yes, about yes. His mother persona has left, and then all of a sudden he rushes in, and he's like, "Oh my god, we got to take care of this now. Can't believe this is happening." But even all of that still felt kind of like an act to me. Yeah, the, you you very much understand that. Like this is not the first time he's done this, and the the, yeah. the open question is, how long has he been doing this? Like, just how long is his yeah. list of victims? You know, I think the swamp scene and, and ditching the car in the swamp is very telling because it's also indicating to the audience that he has this uh, sort of uh, this tool to uh, immediately available to him to dispose of evidence and he's clearly adept at using it he understands that it's it's there for him it's it's there for his convenience so when you when, yeah. when, when you see that it's kind of implicit that like oh yeah no this is this is what Norman does I think it's brilliant writing to really show his mania when you have the film for like at least the first 30 minutes really focused again kind of almost more being like a crime drama and the film is so focused on the forty thousand dollars and then he kills her and it's not about the money at all disappears just evaporates just evaporates the car trunk it's in the swamp it was never about the money he doesn't give a crap about the money um and that really just helps highlight like just how much of a for lack of better term psycho he is cool well on that note i think we're gonna go ahead (laughs) we we should probably wrap wrap it up up. because We could talk about this for probably another <laughs> 10 hours at least. Yeah, that's the thing that I knew was going to be difficult about this episode. Uh, but either way, huge thanks to you guys for coming Thank on. Thank you guys. Yes, um, this was great conversation. Had a load of fun. Before we wrap things up, Aaron, once again, just a weird synchronicity. I hopped on uh, Twitter to make sure that I had retweeted uh, what you had sent out earlier, Eric. Mm-hmm. And the top of my news feed was someone randomly tweeting out, what is your favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie born August 13th, 1899? We're recording August 12th, peek behind the curtain. Tomorrow is his birthday. And uh, it's that picture where he has that goofy face and he has a long cigar and a bird has landed on it. Yeah. Oh, I love that one. We we considered that for a cover, I think, at one point. Um, I think that was on our short list when we were choosing covers. Yeah. But I think, yeah, we we, we opted not to uh, not to go with that one. So yay for weird synchronicities while we re- <laughs> while we record that happens to us a couple times. Fantastic. So yeah, uh, real quick before we move on, once again, Jim McDevitt. Eric San Juan, authors of A Year of Hitchcock, 52 Weeks with the Master of Suspense. So on that note, do you guys have anything else coming up soon that y'all want to plug or anything else going on? September 20th, the films of Martin Scorsese, Gangster's Greed and Guilt is coming out. And um, if you like Scorsese's pictures, I'm, I'm very proud of the work. I tackled every single one of his films uh in a similar uh, again you know chronologically front to back in his career including the irishman i think i'll be the first book in print right. to cool. analyze awesome. the irishman so i'm excited about that i hope people will uh check it out it should be on all the usual websites and in fine how about you jim do you have anything you everywhere. want to play? Uh, not really <laughs> simple enough Okay, uh, Come on, plug, plug, the, uh, plug the other book that uh, Eric and I wrote, which is uh, Hitchcock's Villains, uh, Murderers, Maniacs, and Mother Issues uh, that came out in 2013. If you really want to get into more of a, a character study on, on some of these guys, it's it's uh, a lot more in-depth than uh, the the film-by-film look that we took at the, the pictures in, uh, in the first book. Uh, this one really, really kind of like, gets into the characters like Norman Bates and in, in particular uh, the cover photo for that book is actually from, from psycho. Well, actually as is uh, 
Oh, uh, you're a Hitchcock. <laughs> just, just for, for just for the benefit yeah. of uh, you guys, that's, uh, yeah, that's the other one. Cool. Okay, that's that's a too. great cover to it. I like that cover a lot. Yeah, awesome. yeah, we were we were yeah, thrilled with how that came out. So, listeners, please check those out and support the copies. Because yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to grab myself, a, especially the villains. That one I'm insanely curious about now. Yeah, I've got my copy of the year here, and it's full of like notes that I've kind of written the linings as I've kind of been working my way through it. Um, I'm glad that at this point, most Excellent. of the movies are kind of readily available now. I had a little bit of trouble over the last couple of years with just so many things going out of print, but you know, little by little there's you know more stuff coming out from a lot of these boutique dealers i'm really excited because i just got the uh hitchcock bip collection from kino recently with their sale and that's got the ring the farmer's wife champagne manx man and skin game which are all ones that i haven't been able to see yet um and i'm about to get a really nice blu-ray set that i think i paid 20 bucks for so well, well worth the money that's terrific thank you guys so much thanks so much for having us guys really appreciate it had a great time maybe uh near future if we do shutter island might holler at you eric i'd love to love to sit in on that i still got i still have scorsese on the brain so i i haven't fully let that project go yet so i'd, I'd, yeah. I'd be down with doing that absolutely i read uh eric's uh, scorsese book uh as he was as he was writing it and uh, i'll say it's excellent so uh you guys should awesome. pick it up yeah yeah i'm i'm definitely grabbing it i'm i'm kind of a scorsese fanatic so i'm i'm definitely gonna grab that cool cool well that's pretty much it derek i'll let you take it out uh we are watching today our horror movie podcast hosted by a coward myself and movie monster boy aaron uh you can find us at pretty much anywhere you you get your podcasts primary one seems to be apple podcast but really wherever please continue to rate and review us and share us around we are past 350 reviews on apple and so we're working towards 400 kind of insane thank you all thank you can't freaking believe it amazing and we have also been getting a chunk of reviews on pod chaser which has been great too so please continue to do that for us that really helps you can find us at, at Watch If You Dare on Facebook and Twitter. We're right now probably more active on Twitter, but if we get more people on Facebook and people strike up conversation, we'll definitely be more active there too. I will be more active on Twitter yeah. because <laughs> they're both cesspits, but I just I don't get on Facebook anymore. Sorry, guys. <laughs> There's Aaron, my optimistic co-host. Um, <laughs> but uh, And on that note too, thank you to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for our bumps at the beginning and the end of each episode. You can find him at Party Gator, at his band camp. Please support yep. his music. He actually just put out a new album called Circution, which is excellent. Um, so definitely drop by his band camp and throw him a couple bucks for it. Yeah. And on that note. You might have fooled me, but you didn't fool my Sally. A boy's best friend is his Sally, after all. <laughs>